a reporter once asked uh, Walt Disney how it felt to be famous. He uh, responded by saying, well, it helps me get good tickets at a football game, but it doesn't help me command obedience from my daughter. It doesn't impress my wife. It doesn't make me shoot a better shot in a polo game. In fact, he said this, being famous doesn't even seem to help keep fleas off my dog. So if being famous doesn't give me an advantage over a couple of fleas, I guess it's not worth much after all. <laughs> that good. Rather rare, isn't it, to hear somebody famous speak so down to earth with realism. But I think that reporter's question is insightful. How does it feel to be famous? The average person on the street is somewhat convinced that famous people feel better, that they may live better lives. They sort of have an edge up, you know, on happiness or uh, perspective or maybe even uh, practical wisdom. I found it interesting, and I've read that Henry Ford, uh, the multimillionaire automaker, was hounded by journalists, if you read his biography, which I have, asking him advice on everything from the price of wheat to politics, even advice on how to, how to have a great marriage. Advice he freely dished out, even though he kept a mistress for years behind his wife's back. You know, I'm convinced that the, the average Christian, deep down, is fairly convinced that God's program is moved forward by uh, important people. You know, impressive people with natural charisma or abilities or some kind of wonderful track record. And I I think it shows up when the church gets really excited when somebody famous or wealthy or or well-connected, you know, comes to faith as if, I guess, the angels are singing a little louder over their conversion, right? As if God's work can really get a jump ahead now that they've come to faith. Finally, we we can get somewhere that they're here. The truth is, I think we're surprised when God uses ordinary people, average people, without stellar resumes or you know, unusual connections, everyday kind of people. We might not admit it, but I think the church is, is somewhat surprised when God has plans for someone especially who's miserably failed in the past. You've probably heard this story and and, and wondered if it really happened. It really did. It's one of my favorite stories. Ken Sandy writes about it in his book entitled Peacemaker, that when Thomas Edison and his staff were developing the incandescent light bulb, it took literally hundreds of hours to uh, manufacture one single precious bulb. One day after finishing one of those bulbs, Edison handed it to a young errand boy and asked him to take it upstairs to the testing room. And the young man took it, turned, started up the flight of stairs, stumbled and fell, and the light bulb shattered into a thousand pieces on the stairs. Edison reassured him that it'd be all right, turned to his rather disheartened staff and said, let's begin another. Hours later, in fact, several days later, It was finished, and to the surprise of his staff, Edison took the bulb, walked over to that same errand boy, and said, would you take this upstairs to the testing room? 
which he did in that time successfully. The surprising part of that story to me isn't so much that Edison trusted the errand boy the second time, it's that he trusted him the first time. What are you doing giving the bulb to that guy? You would expect Edison to take it up the stairs himself. He'd do it right. I think it's wonderful if you pull that truth into the gospel. Think about the fact that God has chosen to use errand boys like you and me. He uses ordinary people to carry His light. He uses run-of-the-mill people to demonstrate His power. Uh, Even though our unspectacular, commonplace, speckled lives have failure all throughout, He uses us. The average Christian, I'm somewhat convinced, goes to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 and starts reading through the list of great heroes of the faith with this attitude. Let's see. Made it down here to verse 4. Abel, uh, he's there, of course. Enoch, well, he deserved it. Noah, obviously. Abraham and Sarah, well, no surprise there. Isaac, down at verse 20. Jacob and Joseph, of course. We expect that. Moses, no surprise there. I mean, these are the famous people in Israel. These are the legends born with some kind we think of cutting-edge you know, faith. We're not surprised at all to find these famous people listed in this legacy of faith. And the average Christian thinks to himself, you know, I, I would never imagine being included in this ledger of faith. Not me. Well, you need to keep reading because you're about to discover two entries of the most unlikely candidates ever. And God is about to inform us, by the way, that faith comes from and through the lives of unlikely people. I'm so glad they're included. If you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 11, I want to cover the next two entries here regarding the Israelites and Rahab. Now, in verse 29, you'll notice that we're going to shift from Moses to the plural pronoun, which includes the entire people of Israel. Notice, by faith, they, and if you haven't circled the word they, I recommend you circle that in your text. By faith, they, not just Moses, but all of them, passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. All that's said is that one verse, and you know what? Eighty verses from the book of Exodus are condensed into that one verse. And we don't even have time, we, don't, we can't dare turn back to the book of Exodus, which I did in my study, so let me just sort of review it for you. It's a familiar story. One thing you need to know, which makes Hebrews eleven twenty nine really stand out, is that the Israelites leave Egypt and everything is going smashingly, wonderfully, until they get word that Pharaoh's army is coming after them. Somewhere along the way, Pharaoh said, what in the world was I thinking? I just let our entire host of unpaid laborers go free. We got to go get them back. Now they're after them. 
The Israelites are pinned down. There are mountains on one side, a desert plain on another, the Red Sea in front of them, and the soldiers behind them. They're virtually stuck. And they say this to Moses, and I'll quote from the account in Exodus. They said this to Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? And there's faith for you, isn't it? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That does not sound like faith. What is Hebrews doing, including them? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but you need to understand, of course, the liberals and the critics are going to be quick to point out that the Red Sea can be translated Sea of Reeds. So they conclude this is not what we think about when we think of the the historic location of the Red Sea, this is, you know, just a, this is just a shallow, knee-deep, marshy, you know, overgrown creek. It wasn't much of a sea at all. It would have been nothing miraculous for them to wade across. Okay. But isn't it a little embarrassing then that, then that the Egyptian army will drown in knee-deep water? <laughs> then they learn to swim in the shallow end. no. The Red Sea had an average of about 1,800 feet deep. The sea is deep enough to cause the children of Israel to assume they are hopelessly pinned down and there is absolutely no way out. And their first response is fear, not faith. I love Moses' command of the people of fear, which transforms them into a people of faith. He said this, again, Exodus chapter 14, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. He's going to do something for you. You will never see the Egyptians again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. By the way, in Hebrews 11, you have two events And the same command is repeated in both events. Be quiet. When you circle Jericho, be quiet. When when the Egyptians come upon you, be be silent. Just just be quiet and, and watch. And I love that because God asks them to do something, but He asks them to do the only thing they can do. Be quiet and watch. Here's a key principle of faith, if you're taking notes. Faith is willingness to obey God even when it seems hopeless. Even when it seems hopeless. We're told, again, in the fuller account that God caused an east wind to sweep in. He divided the waters in two. He didn't divide the waters with the wind. The wind dried out that riverbed so that the next morning or a few hours later, nearly three million Israelites are going to be able to risk their lives and by faith walk in between two walls of water. Now at this point, you you may have an image in your mind of Moses. He's got long gray hair and a beard and he looks like Charlton Heston. And, and you got this narrow passageway where Israelites are walking two by two, you know, shoulder to shoulder, and well, not quite. What would it have taken to get millions of people across a dry riverbed quickly enough 
so that in the morning watch, they're already through it, and then the Egyptians try it. Well, thanks to expositors that I was able to research and, and Bible scholars who evidently enjoy math, which I don't, I can't imagine why, but anyway, they, they estimated the dry riverbed would have had to have been hundreds of yards wide. In fact, one estimates it as much as a mile wide. And the line of Israelites would have stretched for nearly a mile to get through that quickly. They have all their possessions, they have all their wagons, they have all their cattle. This is a little line, a two by two. This is massive. I mean, he separates the wall of water and uh, allows these people, because of this east wind, his people walk through on a dry river, they're, they're driving their carts, driving their cattle. In fact, we're told that the Lord caused the current to stop flowing downstream. It's possible, then, that the wall of water upstream would have continued to rise. Or, he could have caused just the current to stop. In fact, it seems to be an indication that that's what he did, because in Exodus 15, it says, he's, the writer says that the deeps were congealed. They literally formed into a different kind of substance. Moses writes, the deeps were congealed. The Israelites then went through it. I'm sure they went through it very quickly. I mean, wouldn't you? You're not going to stop and take pictures and, you know, oh, look at the fish stuck in the jello there, and let me go over. No, 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 you're, you're, going, to, you're going to probably run through. Arthur Pink, in his commentary on this passage, said there are three degrees of faith. The first is a faith that receives you know, kind of like empty beggars. That's how we got saved. We could do anything but receive it. The second is a faith that reckons. That is, it, it counts on God to fulfill His promises, even though we don't have to do anything about it. And the third is a faith that risks. This is a faith that believes the promise of God and yet has to do something so that that faith can be demonstrated through their risk, their daring. This is the faith of David as he runs to meet Goliath. This is the daring of Elijah who summons all of the false prophets to Mount Carmel. This is the daring of the apostles who defied the authority and said, we will not stop preaching the gospel. Now this is the daring of the Israelites. They can't stay on the other side and go, well, okay, Lord, we believe the promise. No, they've got to walk down that dry riverbank Wall of water divided, perhaps one of them just mounting higher and higher, cutting off the light of the sun. And you walk through it, and you risk everything. You can't just believe, you just can't receive. You've got to do. And they did. This is one of the greatest corporate acts of faith in the lives of people who had consistently failed. Of course, Hebrews 11 informs us here the Egyptians came after them and tried it. God caused that dry riverbed to immediately begin to draw moisture. Their wheels bogged down. Then those two walls of water came rushing toward them with such unbelievable 
fury that every one of them to a man died and historians record that it will be nearly 35 years before Egyptians will even venture near the Red Sea again. God used unlikely people who had really done nothing but fail through whom He demonstrated His promise. Now, now verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Again, it's uh, possible to look at this and go, okay, I know all about that story. I've, I've read this a few times. Well, slow down. You need to understand, first of all, there's a 40-year gap between verse 29 and verse 30. Maybe it'll help to write that in the margin of your Bible. 40-year gap, at least. The Israelites who crossed the Red Sea are not the same Israelites who crossed the Jordan who are now facing the city of Jericho. This particular story takes place a generation later in the book of Joshua. This is a different group of Israelites. This time the writer of Hebrews is going to condense 83 verses into these two verses. I'm just saying that so you'll know how hard my job is. Okay? Everybody say, aww. Ready? Thank you. I feel better. All right. Now, if you went back to the Journal of Joshua this time, you'd discover the full story. The Israelites have just crossed the Jordan River. Again, God miraculously divides the water. People walk across. He doesn't really mention that. But this time they're trusting God to lead them on their way as they move into the land that's been promised Abraham. And, and their first stop is this walled fortress of Jericho. Now we learned as children, many of us, that classic old spiritual in Sunday school, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and what? And the walls came tumbling down. Jericho barred the entrance into Canaan. It, it's a massive fortress standing in their way. The city was armed to the teeth. It was well equipped. It was heavily armed. And here stand the Israelites, and most of them, all they've done all their lives is farm. (laughs) They've got their pitchforks and some cattle prods, and, and let's go get them. Now remember, this would have been the city where the spies 40 years earlier had come back to report Deuteronomy chapter 1, and the report included these words, and they're talking about Jericho. Think about it in that context now. The report said, the spies said, the people are bigger and taller than we are, and their city walls reach up to heaven. And that report had thrown Israel into such a panic that they said, we can't go any further, and they ended up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Two of those spies had said, no, 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 we can do it. We can do it. We'll we'll trust the promise of God. Those two young spies are now 40 years older. One of them is the commander named Joshua. I love the fact that Joshua and Caleb are back. They're back. They're back now, and they're looking at that same fortress. They're 40 years older, They've had 40 years to wait and to think and to prepare. And now the strategy is given 
to Joshua, and he was probably surprised. Here's the strategy. I'll review it for you. If you're younger in the faith, you may not know this. Soldiers, priests, and people. It's implied that the people walk around the city of Jericho once a day for six days. They're to walk in such a way that priests at the front of the line are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and seven priests are blowing on trumpets made of ram's horns, and then the people behind. On the seventh day, they are to walk around the city seven times, and then one of the priests is going to give a long blast on his trumpet, and all of the people are going to look at that city and shout, and the walls are going to fall down. That's great. Is there a plan B by any chance? No, that's it. I've tried to imagine that scene from the other side. Can you imagine soldiers up on the walls looking down at this procession? Can you imagine, you know, one of them yelling down to the Israelites, you know, what in the world are you doing down? What are you doing down there? Imagine that conversation. It, it didn't happen because they're not talking, but suppose it did. Well, we're, we're conquering your city. Oh, how's that? Well, we're going to walk around your city once a day for six days. Oh, wow. Well, what then? Well, then we're going to walk around it seven times on the seventh day. Oh, you're scaring me. Stop. And what then? Well, and then, and then our priest is going to blow on his trumpet. We're going to shout at your walls, and they're going to fall down. <laughs> Great. We can't take it. Stop. We know the conversation didn't happen, couldn't happen, because part of God's command was that all the people remain absolutely silent during their march around the city. It was as much a demonstration of them to remain silent as it was for them to shout. Don't forget that. Both were the will of God. Which is, by the way, such wisdom from the Lord, because can you imagine the the potential grumbling in the ranks, you know, day four? Not one stone of this wall has budged. I mean, we ought to be building ladders. You know, we ought to dig some tunnels. You know, build some humongous slingshot or something that, you know, we can light. Uh, One author said it this way, how much mischief is created by people perpetually talking about the difficulties of the task confronting us. Listen, he writes, all real Christian service is beset with difficulties. Satan will see to that. They could travel around that city wall and after seven days be so upset and so infuriated and and so divided and so factioned off that no one would have had a voice to yell on the seventh day. God in his wisdom knew human nature well enough that even though they were trusting him, the best thing they could do was remain quiet, especially in light of this strange strategy. Hudson Taylor, the missionary pioneer to China, said there are three stages to God's will. Impossible, difficult, done. There will always be difficulties and always be challenges. There will be disappointments. And frankly, as we attempt to demonstrate through us as a collected body, faith, we have to understand that we are fallen sinners. 
joining hands with fallen sinners to reach fallen sinners with the gospel. Sometimes it's helpful to just be quiet and work. There's no such thing as an opportunity for God without opposition from the enemy. In fact, it's been said that the greater the opportunity, the greater the opposition. I just finished this past week biography of Adnarm Judson, and in one of the chapters, he's baptized one of the petty chiefs in Burma. It was the highest official that he had ever baptized, had come to faith in Christ and here in Burma, and a huge crowd had showed up, and they, they lined the river, and as soon as that chief came up out of the water, the crowd began to laugh. What a fool! That chief is. What a crazy ordinance. You look like a wet fool. Mocking. I mean, here in our assembly, when people are baptized, we clap. Imagine being baptized knowing when you come up out of the water, you're going to be surrounded by people who mock you. Can you imagine these armies up on that wall? I mean, they spent seven days laughing and jeering and mocking and hurling blasphemy upon blasphemy down upon the heads of these farmers. What a test of faith. Here's a key principle. Not only is faith willingness to obey God even when it seems hopeless. Secondly, faith is willingness to follow God even when it seems ridiculous. We walked around this this wall, this city wall, 12 times. And not one loose pebble, not one little rumble, not one change. Jeering blasphemy hurled down on us for six days. I mean, what kind of military strategy is this in the first place? How could we have come so far for nothing but by faith, obedience, in following God even when it seemed ridiculous, they, to a man and a woman, they said, but we shall walk around this city for the 13th time. We will do it. We will raise our voices in a shout of triumph. We're going to aim it at this fortress of unbelief. We will do it. And they did it. The priest blew that long note on his trumpet, and then all the people began to shout, and I think, I think even to their own amazement, the walls came tumbling down. I don't think any of them looked at each other and said, yeah, we knew that happened. I think it took their breath away. They marched into the city and took that city, stunned city as it was, captive, judging it as the instrument of God as he had promised now, and they had had 40 years to repent and had refused. Faith keeps walking. Impossible, difficult, done. Start all over again. Impossible, difficult, done. Start all over again. Impossible, difficult, done. The story gets even better even richer. I want you to notice one personal vignette of faith tucked inside this amazing national act of faith. Look at verse 31. 
we're introduced to another unlikely person of faith. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Here's a sentence you would never imagine reading in the Bible. By faith, Rahab the harlot. Talk about famous for all the wrong reasons. You talk about connections. She had all the wrong ones. Talk about the last person you'd ever think would be converted to faith in the living God. But guess what? She'd heard the stories. Joshua's journal again tells us that she told the spies who'd come, I've heard all about your God. In fact, I I even heard the story growing up about you crossing, note this, the Red Sea. Not the Jordan, which they just crossed. Forty years earlier, I heard, we all heard, about how God divided the water and you all walked across the dry riverbed as God divided the Red Sea. And she said, and our hearts melted within us. Don't miss that. Forty years ago when the spies returned and said, oh, there are giants in the land and cities with walls reaching up to heaven, a reference to Jericho, we'll never be able to do it. And everybody panics. Now we learn that 40 years earlier their hearts had all melted. They were terrified. Isn't it tragic to think that that was the real story? All along, ready to be taken, if not converted. Terrified of the miraculous power of God. They'd heard of it. Now now you have this harlot with more faith than the entire generation of Israelites. Because she said, when I heard that you walked through the Red Sea... I knew, and I'm quoting Joshua too, I knew that the Lord had given you the land and that your God was the God of heaven and earth. The Israelites had marched through the Red Sea and they came to the conclusion, we can't do it. This prostitute heard the story and she said, oh, after I heard that happened, I knew you were following the true and living God. She said, I, to these spies that had come in this time to hide away, she said, I, I, I knew he was the real God, and here's what I love. She said to them effectively, and can I come with you? Do you think your God would accept somebody like me? And they said, Absolutely. You tie that red rope on your window, sill, and we'll see it. Recent research indicates that that red rope was actually used by prostitutes to indicate business was open. One author said she lived in the red rope district. (laughs) You put it out there, you act as normal as you possibly can, even though business had closed down, she'd moved her family into wait. 
And when they came, she was ready. Now, now some have tried to soften the edges of this story by saying that the Hebrew word for harlot can be translated innkeeper. It can be. Context has a lot to do with which one you're talking about. Often in ancient days, they were actually part of the same industry. That's why Christians needed hospitality when they traveled. They didn't want to stay in an inn. The trouble with that view is that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, written about 200 years before the birth of Christ, Jesus even quoted from it. The Greek word used is clearly the word for prostitute. More importantly, the word used by the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 11, as well as James, you remember, as he points out the faith of Rahab, he calls her Rahab the harlot. They all use the same Greek word, porne. It's the word that gives us porn, pornography, most often translated fornicator. She did not run a bed and breakfast. She ran a brothel. Why soften the story? This is the point of her glorious story. God demonstrated His grace to an unlikely prospect who then becomes the most unlikely person in her city to become a demonstration of faith in the living God. She is going to stake her entire future on God redeeming her a harlot, and the grace of God to accept her. Faith is our willingness to forget the failure of our past and risk everything about our future as we obey God. Let me wrap up our study here with two enduring truths from these uh, stories. I, I call them of surprising faith. First, your weakness does not hamper God's power or performance through your life. Your weakness does not hamper God's performance through your life. Griffith Thomas, an expositor, pastor, author, who among other things helped in the formation of Dallas Theological Seminary in the early 1900s, wrote in his little commentary I have long out of print on Hebrews 11, said this, he said, faith is convinced that God exists, faith is convinced that God is able, that God is ever-present, that God can perform what He wills, that God has proven Himself and will yet prove Himself faithful again. Griffith Thomas said, every Christian has, like David of old, five small pebbles to use. They are, God is, God has, God does, God can, and God will. Little pebbles. Little pebbles work really well in the hands of little people, ordinary people, common run-of-the-mill people like you and me. God, through little people, makes giants fall and demonstrates His power for them as water is parted and, and walls fall by the shouting of little people. <laughs> and He demonstrates His faith in, in 
common, ordinary sinners who turn to him in faith. And, and God receives all the credit. You know, God receives all the credit from little people. Tell you what, let's stay little, shall we? Little people tend to give God the credit more quickly. I think of Hudson Taylor, one of my most encouraging missionaries of whom I've read several biographies. I pulled it out again this week and found this one quote. He was older now, and the China Inland Mission had just reached into the interior of China amazingly. He was asked by a, a journalist who was interviewing, aren't you amazed and honored to see what the China Inland Mission has accomplished? I mean, doesn't that just amaze you? And he responded, and I quote, I think that God must have been looking for someone small enough for him to use so that all the glory might be his, and he found me. Isn't that good? I love it when famous people of faith talk like that. You know you're talking to the genuine item. This is realism. This is spiritually genuine. I think we all ought to talk like that. God is looking for people small enough through whom he can demonstrate his power who will then return to him all the glory. When we're like that, our weakness does not hamper God's performance through our lives. Secondly, your past does not hinder God's plans for your life. I mean, look at Israel. What a past. <laughs> what a past. What a future. What a future. Look at Rahab. What a past. Do you have a checkered past? No more checkered than Rahab. What a past. What a future. Let me encourage you to leave your reputation in the hands of God and go about your business of serving Him. Leave that in His hands. Rahab is rescued after the walls fall down, she and her family. Here's her future, and then I'll be through. It isn't long before a godly Israelite named Salmon meets her, and he is so moved by where she'd been and how she'd believed and what she risked and what she abandoned and her faith that he says, this is the woman I've been waiting for all of my life. And he proposes and she accepts. And get this, he's one of the princes of Judah. He's in the royal line of the Messiah. And this mixed couple, Jew and Gentile, have a little boy and they name him Boaz. And Boaz grows up hearing the testimony from his mom's own lips about her past and her faith and her risk. And it didn't ruin his life either. 
In fact, he grew up watching his faithful Jewish father and his faithful Gentile mother, and his little heart is prepared, isn't it, to do the same? Because he's going to grow up and marry a Gentile woman who had a past of idolatry named Ruth. A couple generations later, their great-great-grandson will be named David, as in King David. Look at Rahab's past. Look at her future. We all have pasts. Imagine our not-so-distant future. For Jesus Christ, who was born of mixed blood, Jew and Gentile, has come to call a bride, win a bride of mixed blood, of every tribe and tongue and nation. (laughs) Just imagine your future. When I preached recently in Medellin, Colombia, it was very moving to me to see the hunger the services would be full before an hour before the services would begin. And I'm so grateful for this church's support and prayers for wisdom for the heart as our sermons are translated into Spanish, played three times a day now in 14 countries. In fact, I met two young ladies this morning from Honduras who listen every day. We preached and Juan Lopez translated, and at the end of that service in Medellin, Colombia, an invitation was given for anybody who wanted help or counsel to come to the front after the service and there at the end of the service and kind of a major traffic jam and and I stayed on the platform. I couldn't say anything to anybody anyway. Except Mayamo Esteban. My name is Stephen, that's about it. <laughs> and then gracias, gracias. I said gracias a lot. About an hour later as the building is emptying a staff member brought up on stage a woman. Folks had evidently been praying for her, and to their surprise, she had come. The translator filled in the gaps for me, telling me that she was now leaving a life of prostitution. In fact, she was a drug courier for a drug cartel. She had accepted Christ a few moments earlier. I'll never forget standing there with this woman, beautiful young woman, tears in her eyes, saying through this translator that she now belonged to Christ. Think about her past, but not for very long. Imagine her future. So as we remember our past, let's not spend too much time there. Imagine your future and remember in the meantime that your weakness does not hamper God's performance. Your past does not hinder God's plans. And faith demonstrated through unlikely, ordinary, common, run-of-the-mill people. As we surrender to Him, we discover his willingness to forget our past and present to us daily a future as we walk with God.
Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for including in the record of people that we would just expect to see here. We would assume that you do your best work through the most gifted people. We thank you that that isn't true. You do your best work through available people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for choosing a a bride like us. Thank you for loving us. Allow us to be demonstrations of faith as we leave here and face a new week.